Hey folks, I'm Mike Taylor from Page 99, Pygmy Lush, and Terminal Bliss, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I'm your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And on the show this week, we have Brad Wallace of Orchid. Orchid are back after a 21-year hiatus, and we cover everything, the history of the band, the reunion, Brad's other band's bucket full of teeth, Wolves, Transistor, Transistor, Look, Brad has done a lot over the years, and we talk about all of it, and you're going to hear about all of it. But first, here's how you can support The New Scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Reviews. Please give me Apple Podcast Reviews. I'm trying to get us over 200. We currently sit at 168, and we need to get over 200. So if you listen, on an iPhone. Open up the podcast app, search the new scene, scroll down, hit that five-star button. Your support is much appreciated. Shirts. The new scene has shirts for sale at Deathwish Inc. There's a long sleeve option. There's short sleeve options. Pick one up. It's a great way to support the show. And you can always email me at newscenepod at iodinerecords.com. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. No Man has some gigs coming up with Strike Anywhere. Those gigs are May 3rd at Richmond Music Hall and May 4th at St. Vitus. Rebuilder will be performing on Cruise Askew. That's the Jay and Silent Bob Cruise, which takes place February 23rd through the 26th. Check Rebuilder's page for more info. Jerome's Dream have East Coast tour dates in February. Check their page or the Iodine page for a full list of dates. Dead Bars just released Jukebox Volume 1. This is two new cover songs that are available now to stream everywhere. And last but not least, the Bucket Full of Teeth discography is up now and available for streaming. Pre-orders are up, so go grab it. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor. Death Wish Inc. That's right, the legendary, the classic, the fantastic Death Wish Inc. are back to sponsor the new scene for the month of January. And here's some updates. Touche Amore is survived by Revived. Hit stores January 19th. The record has been remixed and remastered for its 10-year anniversary and is available now in spatial audio. You can pre-order the record right now at deathwishinc.com and deathwishinc.eu. For more updates, follow Deathwishinc on Instagram at deathwishinc or check out the website at deathwishinc.com. Okay. So listen, check back in with me. So check back in with me in segment three. I'll tell you everything that's going on with me. But right now, we are going to speak to Brad Wallace, 
of Orchid. Enjoy. Right, we are here now with Brad Wallace. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Keith. Glad to be here. Yes, Brad, it's exciting to have you here. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Orchid is back and will be playing shows. And beyond that, you have a very storied history in music. Bucket full of teeth, transistor, transistor, wolves. Brad, you're doing it all. And we're going to talk about all of that. And probably more. But first, I want to ask you, how are you doing today? Uh, doing good today. Uh, wrapping up the last day of Christmas vacation, visiting the parents with my family and visiting my brother in North Carolina and headed back to Philadelphia tomorrow. So uh, kind of uh, just relieved to be through the holiday period for the most part. Yeah, same here. You know, there there has been no break over this holiday. I was looking forward to having a week off there's been stuff to do every day, but that's fine. That's fine. I'd like to stay busy. So so you're in North Carolina right now. Yes, I am. Just like outside Asheville. Uh, my parents are kind of moved here in retirement. And this is where my brother has lived for, I don't know, 25 years or something like that. You have a family of your own, right? A wife and kid? Yeah, yeah. We live in Philly. Or we live outside of Philly in the suburbs now. Yeah. Okay. When did you first move to Philadelphia? I moved to Philadelphia, I think, at the end of summer of 2006. I've lived in Philadelphia a really long time. Um, I think we just crossed 18 years or something, which would tie it with when I spent 18 years growing up in Alabama. So it's, yeah, it's the, the second home, I suppose. So you have a studio in Philadelphia, correct? Um, I used to. I've kind of... Um, kind of shut that down to where it'd be more of a thing where I might mix a record or work on music with people just in my basement. Um, so my website's not really updated because it's just kind of a place for me to let stuff like land if I do have something that com comes up, etc. But at some point, the lifestyle of uh, working on nights and weekends didn't really jive for where I wanted to be anymore. Plus, having a wife and kid, it doesn't really drive with that well. I know tons of people do it, but it wouldn't work out for me anymore. Um, and uh, so, you know, just became a nine to five person. What do you do for your job? Uh, I'm an AV tech at a university in Philadelphia, um, and it's at a medical school. So it involves some kind of like interesting stuff occasionally beyond just like getting like classrooms set up. But we had a whole new building that we moved into. So I had brand new equipment that everyone had to learn. So it's just like a, you know, a process of helping people. The point is to, you know, get these people in classrooms teaching and everything working correctly all the time and them to not have to think about it. So um, that's what it is on like a, you know, daily basis, I'd suppose. And how long have you been married? Oh, since 2016. Mm. 
So was it difficult for you to transition into a life of being married and having a child? Because for most of your life, you're out on the road, touring in bands, doing your thing in music. No, not at all. Um, I'm happy, happy to do that and, and very happy right now with uh, how my life is structured. Um, and I kept playing music and working in the studio like, you know, well into my mid to late 30s. But even since I moved to Phil, like when I moved to Philadelphia, I was still in Transistor Transistor, which practiced in New Hampshire at that time. And I would drive back up for practice and shows. Um, wow. That was towards the end. It wasn't a super long period. I was also just used to driving around all the time because I was in my 20s and in bands. So it didn't really isn't that big of a deal. And if you're, I think people in bands realize this. If the band's been around for a while, you can get away with it more because you know the songs and, you know, just focus on writing new songs uh, when you do get those practice times. Um so, but, you know, that might have only been another year and a half. And then I was looking to like start bands in Philly, but I didn't, none of those bands ever went on tour um, and just really, truly played locally. Like I, and I don't even know if I played out of state, probably New Jersey, but you know, that barely counts in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, the older I get, I don't know. I was really adverse to the idea of relationships or marriage or kids mm -hmm. or any of that stuff. But I'm 41 years old now. Yeah. And instead of just thinking, no, never, I think, well, never say never. I think that's a good attitude for most things. And uh, you just got to find the right person. And all of a sudden, you might find that you'll completely change your mind about a lot of stuff. Is that what happened to you? Uh, I don't think it's changed your mind. The things like it's not like, a you know, wake up one day and just snap. But, you know, um, I do think that's a factor uh, for me and I think probably for other people. So, yeah, never, never say never. Uh, I also married uh, my wife as someone who I was friends with in college and we didn't get together for like 17 more years. So that's a never say never. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that happen? Did you reconnect or something? Yeah, we just re reconnected like at a time um, and, you know, it was we weren't 19 anymore. We were more like, I don't know, 35, 36 probably got that wrong, but you know, maybe 34, uh, something like that. And you know, things are, things are different 20 years later. A lot different. So yeah, truly never say never. I can be the poster child for that. <laughs> so you, did you grow up in Alabama? I did. Um, I grew up in Alabama, like all, all my 18 years. And then I went to college in Massachusetts and I never really went back in a, like a way that I like lived there, you know, per se. Um, as a permanent resident. How did you decide on Massachusetts for college? Oh, because I was super into punk rock and whatnot, hardcore from, you know, age 14 or so on. And I also, you know, was growing up in Alabama and got all these like wacky liberal uh, revolutionary ideas from punk rock. So the idea of getting to a college that also had really, you know, kind of out there stuff appealed to me. And I mostly only applied to colleges that were like extremely liberal and had some kind of weird thing going on. And Hampshire College in Western Massachusetts in Amherst is like one of the, you know, weirdest in that it, I think they've changed a little bit, but um, no grades and um, no tests. And really, and just like if you would have read about it at the time and probably still now, you know, it just is like a 
you know, it attracts a certain kind of person. Man, I should have went there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I've met some of my favorite people ever, obviously, including my wife there. Um, and, you know, guys in Orchid, but in, in some people outside of that are some of my still my some of my best friends. So you discovered hardcore and punk in Alabama. Yeah, I think I got pretty lucky um, <laughs> on that end because there wasn't a lot of it. Um, but there was this little pocket. Um, I at least, I mean, this is not like it's, um, what would you say? It's not like it's like some super populated city or anything, but I grew up pretty near Mobile and in between Mobile, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida. And there were actually shows, you know, like occasionally bands would come through there. Um, crucially, though, for a very short period of time, I would say like two years in Pensacola, there was a record store um, that in the front of a show space. And pretty much anything really cool and underground did come through there uh, in that time period. Um, I saw all kinds of shows there that you might not have expected. Um, I could see ASUC, uh, Earth Crisis was one of the last like shows that ever happened there. It was actually kind of one of the reasons the space shut down, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I saw Promise Ring, I saw Sleepy Time Trio, I saw, I don't know, I'm not going to remember them all right now, but you know, like any genre of, you know, punk hardcore that was going at the time, there's a chance it would come through. Not all of it, but you know, people need shows along the way, so... If there's a DIY space in a town, they would hit it up. What was your particular brand of hardcore or punk that you were into? What bands grabbed you? What was your thing? Um, really early on, it was just finding out about like um, crass and minor threat, I would say. Um, but as that came around um, and I got into that, um, I, I like to tell this story because I always think it's like a, I got to fast forward a little bit um, past like maybe just going to the mall and just buying whatever CD you might've heard was punk, et cetera. Um, when I was like a freshman, there was a guy uh, at our high school named Marshall Riser who did have all the cool seven inches and whatnot. And he saw me and my friend starting to wear like t-shirts, like minor threat or whatever. And he said, you know, all right guys, like, let me, you know, why don't you come hang out? Let's, you know, go listen to the good shit, et cetera. And he, even in Southern Alabama in the late nineties had Indian summer and crossed out and man is a bastard and all this stuff on ebullition born against, et cetera. So it just fast forwarded like right past, like, you know, uh, buying pop punk CDs at the mall or whatever, just to look kind of like the most obscure, you know, underground stuff. So that's kind of like my big shocking moment, like still later on in life of just that there was someone around in Alabama that, you know, had that stuff and then <laughs> showed it to me and my friend. That's amazing that you had a source in Alabama who just just pushed you right on to that good, obscure stuff. Yeah. So I would say that like to to answer your question, I got really into what I would call the gravity and ebullition records like hardcore and emo uh and then power violence stuff um and really just i mean anything that was as extreme as possible yeah those are scenes those are scenes i i just i love talking to people like you brad and they're scenes i'm fascinated with because i love the music now but back in 98 99 when i got into this thing i was only listening to the big metalcore bands at the time and not much else so, you know, you know, just just going through it now and, and getting a history lesson and discovering all the bands is uh, 
always a joy for me. Yeah. I mean, there's always bands everybody misses and you come back to and, you know, there's also stuff I like wouldn't listen to during that time period when I'm, I'm specifically talking about maybe when I'm like 19 or so or 17 and, yeah. it, you know, maybe I didn't like at the time and mostly like I was right and then my taste haven't changed that much, but there's sometimes I've like, you know, changed my mind later on, et cetera. Um, so I don't know. I think it's kind of cool to come back around to that stuff. Yeah. People of the ebullition and gravity scene, you know, I would call them the grind kids, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they would have like dyed black hair and they would wear all black and stuff. If I could go back, I would be one of those kids. They had the best fashion sense and they had great taste in music. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, and when I moved to Massachusetts, uh, the kind of, it was a lot more of the, like what I call like tough guy or moshy hardcore stuff. And it was confusing to me cause I hadn't really seen, like, I think I'd heard of like, you know, the big straight edge jinkos and whatnot, but I don't think I'd really yeah. seen any kickboxing. It wasn't really going on in like whatever little scene we had down there. There weren't like local bands for that or anything. And, um, it was kind of a turnoff because it just seemed so insane or whatever. And like all my friends just dressed like they were like skateboarder kids and it was super, you know, it wasn't, no one was dressing super over the top punk rock or anything. It was just like throw a band patch on your shorts, like wear a screen printed t-shirt, you know, done with it or whatever. Right. So you, you go to uh, UMass Amherst and this is where you meet Will from Orchid, correct? That is true. Uh, yeah. Within like a few weeks of uh, freshman year and he was a year ahead. Didn't someone say like you guys needed to meet? Didn't you have a mutual friend who wanted you yeah, guys to meet? Yeah, because I was, you know, I was on campus for like freshman orientation and there were people around, of course, that like are, had already been to school. And I was wearing, you know, I, I exclusively wore band t-shirts during this period of time or whatever. So people saw the shirts I was we- wearing and they're like, you got to meet Will, you got to meet Will or whatever over and over again. I'm like, okay, totally down. You know, that sounds exciting, <laughs> but it was just also became like weirdly like a thing like like i was like pressure did part of you not want to meet him because people kept telling you you should like my brain does that if people are like oh you got to do this or oh you got to meet him then i'm like eh, i don't really want to uh i don't say not want to but i understand that part of the brain like i it would be like okay like you know i it sounds like i will meet him so maybe we don't have to keep talking about it kind of <laughs> <laughs> when you actually did meet him did you like him did you guys like did you guys get along yeah no we totally uh hit it off pretty quickly or whatever and as uh we were you know prone to at the time it was like as soon as you see somebody else in like some obscure band t-shirt like you're just gonna like talk records and this that and other and uh while he didn't like live there like a ton growing up he did live in alabama for like a handful of years not anywhere near me so we weren't like likely to have ever crossed paths but we had that in common as well oh that's odd wow yeah 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 he uh like i think I don't know off the top of my head, but like his high school years, he was in Alabama in near Birmingham. What are the chances of that? Yeah, but like four hours away. Like, it was, you know, he was in the top of the state and I'm at the very bottom. Wow. Yeah. So when does Orchid start to come together? How does it start to come together? Well, um, I arrived on campus just kind of owning a bass and something I messed around with, but I never played in a band or anything. Or I just kind of like screwed around. I've talked with friends about maybe starting a band, but it really wasn't much in the cards there. Um, so Will had already been in doing laceration kind of as a studio project and releasing seven inches like that. And he had met Jay um, the pre- previous year in Hampshire. And I think they'd tried to start a few things. Um, but it was really probably 
to my mind, is somewhere around the time of end of the first semester, beginning of the second semester, um, we actually practiced. And we practiced two times with a guy named Ben, who was a drummer of Skavuvi and the Epitones, which was a pretty big ska band. And he uh, was totally interested in doing with it. And we, were, we worked on some songs. But then he was just like, I'm too busy uh, to do this, I think. That's... Mm, Take all this with a grain of salt because it's really old memories we're talking here. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So if I'm wrong, uh, forgive me, whoever knows the truth. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, anyway, uh, somehow, and we still haven't really figured this out lately, uh, we found Jeff Selaney, who uh, was going to UMass at the time. And we were going to, the, Jay and Will and I were going to Hampshire College. It was in Amherst. Um, and we found Jeff and we practiced with him and it just clicked. Um, but it was really like a process of like, sometimes Will and I would hang out and he would just like show me riffs and I'd be in his dorm room with bass and like learn, learn the riffs. We'd take it to practice and Jeff would figure out drums over it. And, um, you know, Jay would start screaming over it. And then, uh, it actually all happened really quickly. I don't think that I felt like it was quick at the time really. Cause I had no like baseline of, um, of you know anything else um but like i feel like we recorded a demo and played a show like within you know a few months and this was like the first real band you were in right and i mean real like uh you know full band out there playing shows has a demo that type of thing yeah absolutely um literally before that i played one show um with some friends of mine's at that space i referred to in pensacola florida they did some kind of i i want to say it was an open mic thing and we basically just put on like a nonsense, like noise set for some reason. Um, and that might have been the only time I was like on stage prior. How much knowledge did you have coming into Orchid? Like, I'm just thinking about when I was first in a band, I could barely play. And thankfully, one of the guys in the band was nice enough to sit down with me and like walk me through how to play bass along with the guitar and all this stuff. And I'm thinking back to then and I'm like, God, did I even know how to tune or what was I doing? Like, how much skill did you have coming into this? How much work did you do with Will and the other guys? I mean, it was, yeah, I would have, I had close to no skill. So it's kind of amazing. I was able to jump into any kind of band. But yeah, Will, Will worked with me, um, you know, so I, I think that that happens a lot, though in the early days until you've been in a, in a band that does some stuff and you have anything to base it around, like you are kind of just happy to work with your friends and the people that like the same kind of music, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I don't want to debase it too much, but sometimes playing bass in a hardcore band isn't that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I heard you, I heard you, uh, I, I, during researching you, I had a similar trajectory to you where I tried to play guitar and it was just too complicated. So I'm like, let me play bass. It's only four strings. Mm -hmm. It seems much easier. Yeah. And then uh, I was a bass player for a while and then that wasn't enough. So I switched to guitar and, you know, it's a, it's an evolutionary thing. Yeah. And I just kept adding stuff like, you know, at some point, um, you know, it was probably just like learning the songs and pretty much playing the bass part that goes with the guitar riff. And then, you know, as you get a little more confident, you do other stuff. And at some point, someone was just like, hey, like you know, maybe asking me about playing guitar and they're just like, oh, oh, just like, just, you know, if you, this is the bass part, just, you know, make a power chord here or whatever. So I would just mess around with that on the side and, you know, eventually grew to where I could play guitar poorly and then better and a little better. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Orchid Get Started, tell us about that. Were you just playing around uh, Massachusetts? How far did you get out? Like, how was it going? Yeah, well, it really helped early on because Will was doing Clean Plate Records. So he had a lot of contacts with people and they weren't necessarily in Massachusetts, but he was putting out like crust records and grind records and whatever he felt like. Um, so he knew some people, um, and that definitely helped. Um, but we also put on shows at our college and that always helps, um, getting to know people and getting opportunities when you're helping out itself. But, um, yeah, our first show was with, um, Pig Destroyer. Um, oh, wow. Which, and Enemy Soil, who were, you know, like actually probably at the top of the flyer, um, at the time, cause they'd been around. Pig Destroyer was brand new. I think maybe we had the demo tape or whatever, um, so we, so I don't know if they, I think they were just doing a weekend of it with enemy soil and they knew will, and they asked about booking a show and he booked it at our college. We had, um, there was a space that was just kind of like the coffee lounge. Like it was an isolated building. It's called Hampshire college tavern. I assume it still is. And, um, we did a lot of shows in there, but our first show was in there with those bands. Um, and afterwards, pig destroyer uh asked if we wanted to do a split seven inch so it kind of just like really like i said it like went really fast i don't think that happens um uh at most people's first shows no what what an amazing first show wow yeah i don't even know if we were good or not but they thought so so you know <laughs> good enough yeah <laughs> was that mind-blowing for you yeah because i was super obsessed with hardcore and i just bought every seven inch like in the genres i was interested in like and I thought Pig Destroyer was amazing based on their five or six song demo. Um, and we were fans of their previous band, Agoraphobic Nosebleed. And just, you know, because we we're just super into like obscure grind and power violence, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, we were super stoked. Just the idea of like putting out a record um, at all. Um, and I think then they just talked to like they had a mutual friend with Will, um, which was that came out on Amendment Records, and that was run by a guy that was in the band Facade Burn Black, and Will was working with them about working with him about putting out a record. So, once again, it's just like everyone's just like you know supporting each other, working with each other, and uh, you know it leads to like you know yeah putting out records and playing shows together. How were the shows back then around that time? 97, 98, Orchid is playing around because the shows that I went to were of more of, more of the kickboxing variety that you were describing. Yeah. There would be like, there would be local shows that we would put on and there would be a lot of kickboxing and that type of stuff there. Yeah. And then when you went to shows in the city, there would be like bigger gangs of people with more violent kickboxing. Um, I don't know. So you just had to be really careful. So I mean, if you're playing a show with like Orchid and Pig Destroyer and Enemy Soil, what's the vibe? What are people doing? Like, how is it? No, I think that was still the time period where people just stood and like stared at bands, like the shows that we were playing for the most part. Um, there wasn't a lot of wildness. There would occasionally be like a person or something like, you know, uh, running around the room. But I would also differentiate like, you know, things were like hyper local back then. And yeah. I'm describing like a show that would happen at the Hampshire College Tavern that like basically like for a few years there it was like Will booked it or I booked it. Like I started being the primary booker when he graduated and I was still there for another year or two. Um, and but we would also, you know, we would just see flyers for stuff and we would go to the space in Worcester a fair amount. There were good shows there and that could be kind of all over the place. Um you know, you could go see Promise Ring and Piebald or Braid 
you know, one week and then go see, um, man, I saw a tour once. It was like Dillinger escape plan, botch and Jesuit, I think all in one show. And like, yeah, there are people doing crazy mosh stuff at that thing. Um, and like that definitely like the more you got out of like Western mass and got towards Worcester and Boston, like I think the more likely you would be to see kickboxing, but people would book, um, hardcore shows in the basement of, of, of a UMass dorm, um, during that time period. And those shows, I think you, you could get some of that, um, depending on who was playing. Um, but just, there was a big, uh, there was a large amount of moshy hardcore in, in Massachusetts or just like the Northeast in general. So yeah, you would see that stuff and we weren't so much into it. It's not like we didn't like a good mosh part. We just didn't kind of like, like the vibes of like necessarily all the bands or the people in the pit, et cetera. Yeah, I loved the the moshing. I loved the craziness. I just didn't love when it erupted into a giant brawl that would get a venue shut down or get somebody seriously injured. Yeah, right. It's just like, I'm here to have fun. I'm not here to get hit in the head. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we go on. So Orchid goes on to record Chaos Is Me. Did you record that with Kurt Ballou? Yeah. Um, we had previously the first batch of like seven inches, like the self-titled seven inch, the split with Pig Destroyer and the split with uh, Encyclopedia American Traders and, and also a comp song or two. We're all done. Pre- we'd wanted to record with Kurt for whatever reason that we had heard about him um, really early on. He wasn't available. And we recorded with Steve Austin, who had uh, from Today is the Day, who had a studio in Massachusetts early on. Um, and then we had kind of like one of those fill-in recordings where like we just had a, one split lined up and it was like we were going to do this six inch with combat wounded veteran because we'd gone on tour and hung out with those guys and met up with them and uh will decided that he wanted to put out a combat wounded veteran orchid uh six inch uh on clean plate and so we just needed to record like two songs quickly so we hit up kurt again um and just like i think in one day i would say we just like went to like the God city that was, I don't really know the order of them, but like whatever was after the basement in the house and was first just like in an industrial zone and yeah. re-recorded those two songs. And we liked that experience. So then really not that long later, I would say just a few months later, we, yeah, we went there to record chaos as me. And it ended up coming out on ebullition, right? Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Considering you were a fan, right? Yeah. Big time. I mean, that was just like another like step, I guess you would say. And like, you know, the charmed story arc of uh, <laughs> joining a band, not barely knowing how to play bass and then, you know, ending up on one of your favorite labels, like within a year or two. Um, but Will was clean plate was distributed like by ebullition at that point, primarily. So he talked to Kent about all kinds of stuff or whatever, their friends or whatever. And I think we sent him, the demos that we made of that and he knew about the seven inches or whatnot and uh he agreed to put it out and then that just led to like an awesome relationship for the band like from then on out that label was pretty politically conscious right they they spoke out on a lot of social things and different uh things like that yeah well it's been a long time since i've read one of these so i don't remember maybe even necessarily the content but yeah they're interested more interested in bands with a political message overall but like kent used to put in the records like a little insert of just like something he had to say um which you know when you think about it is pretty unique because the band is uh putting out the record and has what they need to say and then you know the label uh also you know stepping up and having something to say um 
was something that could happen in the hardcore scene for sure. But I think he maybe was most prominent with that that I can remember. How about the band Orchid? Did you guys have political or social beliefs that you talked about on stage or in the liner notes or anything like that? And does that does the band need to have those beliefs to be partnered with Ebullition? Huh. Okay, I'll do my best with that. Um, the I would say that like there's probably no band on Ebullition that has like you know contrary beliefs um, or yeah. know, negative beliefs for sure. But I mean that would that's almost a given because even if you weren't a political label, if you had a problem with <laughs> something the band was saying, you certainly shouldn't put out their records. Um, but no, there's, there was never any requirement that someone was like vegan or straight edge or, or, you know, believes in what any given political stance, et cetera. But I think those things were very popular, uh, with us at the time and in the scene at the time. And there's other, you know, aspects that was an attraction to me early on as well. Um, I really liked the political, like I've mentioned, like crass and minor threat were like really like some of the first things I heard that were, you know completely outside the mainstream at the time um, for me. And those things were very political. I was super interested in that aspect of it. Um, and that was super important to me at the time. I, it's tricky, I think, as a not as a person who didn't write the lyrics in the band to say, you know, there's any like one thing or belief system. But, um, you know, that would be something that we'd talk about. But I wouldn't say the you know, lyrics are all political or the band was like all political. Uh, I think there's some personal stuff that's like expressed. And I think there is some political stuff that's expressed, but there's obviously different ways of going about that. Some bands do it in super overt. And then there's, you know, maybe like a more poetic, subtle way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It sounds like uh, the values of the band were aligned with the label and, and it may, well, yeah, it makes sense that you're going to work with people if, if your values align. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think there was a ton of that going on the scene and at the time. And, but like, there's little corners, like, as I'm sure you'll remember. So like the, sometimes you weren't always like, well, you know, like I think that probably back to like the kickboxing and stuff, like people fighting each other at shows didn't jive with like how we thought about politics. I don't think. Right. Right. And yeah, at, I, at that time when I first got into things, I remember a lot more, um, I guess community or around uh, socio-political aspects of the scene, meaning uh, people like giving speeches more between songs or people selling vegan food at shows or, you know, little tables set up with pamphlets. And, you know, as a 16, 17-year-old kid getting into the most extreme hardcore out there, I didn't want to hear any of it back then. I was like, why are they talking about this? This is stupid. I, w- I was just too young and too stupid to listen to anything anyone had to say or listen to anything important that people had to say. But obviously that's changed over the years. Yeah, that's funny because I kind of like gravitated towards that. Um, It's not that I didn't want to see the bands play the songs, but I was interested in the bands that were like speaking uh, and saying stuff, mostly when they could do it well. Um, I had a little revelation about that, like about 10 years ago, I went to the first Unitarian church in... um, Philadelphia for a Los Crudos reunion show. And Martin was just always one of the best at speaking to the crowd. And I definitely had gotten to the point probably in my later years where I was like, I don't, I, I know already, like I've heard it all before. I don't need to hear, you know, another speech from somebody, etc. But he did it so well. I was like, I'm ready to run through a wall for, you know, <laughs> what he's talking about. So I 
you know, I still think obviously it has a place. I don't see it happen very much anymore. Um, I think maybe that's coming back a little bit, but I, I think it really like, you know, some people are just, just like it is to be a singer or a front person in a band, the talking and talking about whatever in between songs, some people are really good at it and really inspire people. Um, and others, maybe it like, yeah, it leads to you just feeling a little flat about it and it doesn't like hit home. Um, but I think seeing Martine still doing it at that point um, and being so good at it, I was like, well, this is why people do it. Because like you get so inspired by like, you know, someone that's so good at delivering the message and like getting you pumped up about this stuff. Yeah, that's another reason that I like this scene. You know, the scene Orchid was part of because there was a lot of that, a lot of awareness, a lot of... Uh important things to say, even if the bands weren't uh, necessarily saying it on stage between songs, the the value system was there. Like uh, I spoke to uh, Billy from Seisha on the show and he was hooked in at the ABC No Rio and they did a lot of food donations and different things for people and talking to you, uh, getting into ebullition at a young age. I just have respect for people who discovered that and got into it at a young age because... Uh, you know, it just took me a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, you know, it's funny thinking about it now. I have no idea what the exact impetus was of like caring about that stuff other than maybe just being a young person and being like, obviously like that thing's fucked up. And then all of a sudden you find out there's people that are actually doing something about it or whatever. But uh, there's a big part of, I think, yeah, the people running DIY spaces. Um, and then there were so many like comps that were for benefits um, that had cool bands on them etc as well and then you'd read about it and you'd be like wow that's so awesome that you know did this to help people out or the bands are about like helping people out etc so i i think it just uh, i think to a young person that is you know in your formative years and you maybe start to see that the world is a fucked up place and there's all kinds of injustice it's natural if you can find a place that you know it's comfortable to talk about that stuff and people are actually doing something about it um I guess that makes sense to certain people. Yeah, that's why I really have love for the scene uh, for many reasons, but for opening my eyes to a lot of different social issues and political issues and everything else. Because, I mean, I grew up in a mostly white Republican town. So like anyone who did anything a little differently was a freak or anybody who spoke out about certain things was weird. And, and then just going to these shows, meeting the people, listening to the bands, hearing what they have to say my eyes were open. So I, I have much love for the scene for that. Yeah. I mean, that was also a part of it for me too, is like growing up in Alabama, like I could fit in for a while, but as I increasingly got into punk, it was like more and more like, I got to get out of here and, you know, to be yeah. like find people that are like, Oh, you're not a crazy racist. Like, you know, like, great. Like, let's do that. Like, <laughs> like I greatly prefer this. Like, can I, yeah, please, really? can I please go to the vegan benefit show? <laughs> So, uh, when did you initially leave Orchid? Was that in 99? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I really just did such a bad job of going to college, uh, one, um, semester that I just had to like leave <laughs> college. And so then I left the band because they needed to keep going and I wasn't anywhere around. So what happens? You're, you're too busy with the band. So you do bad in college? Well, no one else in the band was too busy with the band to <laughs> deal with college. So you can't really say that. No, I just really, you know, it was very exciting being at 
Hampshire and I just didn't like put in the time to like deal with the classes the correct way. Um, you know, way more interested in like band practice and excitement about putting records out and just playing GoldenEye, you know, till two in the morning with my friends, you know, it's really like, just like a pretty simple, you know, just didn't, just didn't do like the basic thing that you should do in life, you know, like just go to class and turn in the papers. Yeah. A brief aside, GoldenEye mm-hmm. was uh, my entire life in <laughs> 1998. Yeah. I, I was, I played it so much. I was so good for certain maps. I had the respawn points memorized in the order in which you respawn. Yeah. So I would kill you. And then I would, I knew where you were going to respawn. So I was already running in that direction. And then I would kill you again. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't uh, call uh, GoldenEye exactly an orchid thing, but uh, Will and I lived in the same student apartment um, second semester and then third and fourth semester, I guess, also. And uh, yeah, somebody had a Nintendo 64, including the other two or three people to live with us. And Jay lived like one, you know, apartment building over, if you want to call it, um, and would be around. But a ton of people would come to our place and play video games and just hang out. So. Uh, that sounded better than reading a difficult book. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll still take GoldenEye over the book. Yeah. 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 But uh, you know what? It wouldn't have been that hard to just uh, get some passing grades, if you will. <laughs> so, you know. So if there's no grades and no tests, how do you like what happens to the like what how do you get in trouble? What what what, what happened? You got to you get a written evaluation, like a page long of like that you did well or something like that uh, or that you didn't do well. And I guess it can lead. I don't really remember, but you can kind of still not get credit or whatever. So I didn't really get any credits, I think, um, which, you know, college is expensive. So um <laughs> doesn't really make sense to stay if you're not actually going to get any credits. So what happened? Did you leave college? Yeah, I just went home for a little bit. And then I came back like later when I was, you know, (laughs) ready to focus on that again. Was it a bummer? Were you sad watching the band go on without you? Um, maybe a little bit at times. But honestly, I think it was like one of like, like a good early formative thing of like, you know, some point you're like, well, I did that, you know, like that's, this is totally on me. There's no one else to blame. There's no other, you know, <laughs> like thing going on here. So I think it maybe was like a pertinent, important early lesson about like just self-responsibility and taking care of business. Um, you know, if you don't do like the basic stuff, you're not going to get to do the fun stuff. How old were you at the time? Um, probably 20, 21, I guess on the cusp of that. Wow. Yeah. Everybody was so much more mature than me when they were young. It's well, crazy. I, like, it's easy to say that now. I do remember having that revelation, but like, you know, I wouldn't say it went into effect super quickly. You know, it's like I still like maybe would make a poor choice about like doing something fun instead of what I need to do. I would get super resentful. And if the band went on without me, I would like never talk to most of the people again. It was always like a lot of drama and emotions and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I just, I'm not. I don't really hold grudges and I didn't think that they I didn't think that they did something wrong you know what I mean like I wasn't around to be in the band and like I was the one that didn't you know <laughs> do college right so um in some ways like not that complicated so you went home did you get in trouble with your parents or anything yeah I mean they weren't happy about spending money on college that I didn't actually get anything out of or whatever so, <laughs> I mean that also seems pretty simple right you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so, yeah, I just like 
went home and uh, to Alabama. That was the last time I lived in Alabama for any extended period. And, you know, it was maybe like six months. Just got like a dishwashing job, hung out with a couple of the old friends that were still kicking around, took a few classes at University of South Alabama just to prove that I could do college, I guess. And uh, yeah, went back to Hampshire. And then, um, oh, so another, okay, so this is a the good segue maybe too, is that um, I ended up starting Wolves kind of as a result of going back to Hampshire and not having like a band to be in, et cetera. And Tim, who I started with, Tim Glowick, who I started Wolves with, um, was roadieing for all the Orchid stuff and he played guitar. And this also in the same way, I just started playing guitar. We would just get together and play guitar, et cetera. And I kind of learned to play guitar just to like start Wolves. Um, so, you know, I may not have done all that as well if I if I could have just kept playing bass. Like maybe I don't, you know, put any effort into playing guitar. I don't know. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, because maybe, yeah, maybe you wouldn't have started guitar. Maybe your whole life would be different. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think also it's just like a on to the next one kind of, you know, thing, um, which is how I've always been about bands. Um, I didn't really take much of a break between 18 and geez, I don't know, I guess for 20 years, like, you know, I, I don't remember exactly when the last time I played a show was, but you know, um, I definitely could have been like 38. Yeah. Wolves, great band. A lot of emo influence, Indian summer, Yafit Koto, Rye Coalition. I hear some sleepy time trio in there. Yeah. Who yeah I yeah. love. Yeah. No, you're, you're nailing it for the most part, or at least that's what we were into. Uh, I don't know how successful it was, but, um, I feel like that was band was a classic case of I would actively maybe want to write riffs that sounded like those bands and I couldn't and it would come out different and that make it its own unique thing, which is a fun part of punk rock. I think a lot of the times and that's what you want. Yeah. Um, is to maybe not exactly rip somebody off because you can't because you're actually not smart enough or good enough to do it. And then it's actually your own dumb thing. Um, but yeah, no, you you totally nailed the bands we were we were into and talking about as influences uh, for that band. It sounds like its own thing, and it invoked the feeling of Sleepy Time Trio. So that's what you want. Oh, that's cool because I really love Sleepy Time Trio to this day, and that was like, yeah, that was a big a big one for me, like at that moment. Um, but also like a good example of being into different stuff, you know, like just kind of like yeah, I just wanted to do something there was an active push to be more emo, I suppose, you know, at that moment in time or whatever, but maybe that's what Tim wanted to do. And I was game for it, et cetera. Um, but everybody that was in that band was absolutely bringing something different to the table and had different influences. So there was a lot of like push pull on like writing the songs and what people like wanted out of them and what people heard. Right. And it must've been exciting to be playing guitar in a band, right? I remember the first band I played guitar in, I was like, yes, I have graduated. I am, I am here. I'm doing it. Yeah, totally. Uh, and just kind of being, in a, yeah, a different, like, uh, taking like a little more of a lead in the band, like Tim and I, you know, like I said, we started playing guitar together and then we just had to find other people. So like, it was a little bit like, do you want to play with us? And then you have to be the person who's also like, I don't know, it, that kind of led to my first role of like, Got to write the, got to write the songs, got to like, you know, set up recording, got to, uh, book shows, you know, got to order the t-shirts to screen, you know, um, which are all things I learned to do like in Orchid, but like were primarily handled by other people for the most part. And a bucket full of teeth. Now you formed this band with Will 
from Orchid. So I guess you kept in touch with the guys from Orchid. Yeah, like I said, I was back at college um, not long, you know, uh, less than a year later or whatever. Um, and I would just, yeah, I would just go to an Orchid show if they were playing nearby. Not everyone necessarily, but they were usually playing with good bands that I wanted to see, et cetera, uh, whatnot. And um, yeah, and we'd hang out and do all kinds of stuff. We were still friends and all doing, you know, interested in the same things. Um, and Will and I had always had this very specific interest in power violence. Not that the other guys weren't, but we were just like, you know, I mean, I owned hundreds and hundreds of seven inches, like in that genre, like at the time. And same for him. He was putting out records um, like that. Um, so we'd always talk about it. And yeah, like Orchid was still going. And I was in Wolves when Bucketful of Teeth started, I'm pretty sure. But it truly started like we were driving somewhere, he and I, and we were listening to one of our favorite bands, Suppression, um, and talking about like we literally just were like, let's just do a band that sounds like this. Like, I love this band. Let's just do this. I don't even care. Like, you know, like generically just do it. Not that you can just do that. Another band. But like, as is our way, we we started working on it. And I think some of the first seven inch like has like pretty straightforward power violence, but really quickly we were just like just kind of trying to push the boundaries on that and do whatever we wanted with it yeah i've heard some pretty wild stories like seven different guitar tracks on a song or uh tuning changes mid-song you guys were doing some interesting stuff in the studio with this band yes yeah i don't remember the plan like early on about whether or not we would be not a live band i don't think that was a decided it was like most bands start you just start it was no real plan other than maybe like a style of music. And I think though, probably because I definitely really bad and very rarely done vocals and play an instrument. That's not really an option for me, like in a serious way, like maybe some backups here and there. Um, on the recording, I did a lot of vocals, about a third of them, I guess, is what we would do. Um, we would just split it up. Me, uh, Will and Matt, the drummer, we would just, after we recorded the songs, we would just do it each of us. And uh, so I think the idea that we were going to do it live probably got away pretty quickly. But, um, you know, since we've uh, since the discography has been reissued, I listened to the stuff a lot more than I had in the like past years. And yeah, but it's time the, the first seven inch was really a demo tape. And then the second seven inch was kind of another demo tape that we had sent around. But by the time the second seven inch happened, the song on side A is called 23 Reasons to Play Grindcore because it's 20, it's got 23 parts in it. And a bunch of them are not possible to be done by a live band with three people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an epic song. Yeah. Um, and I don't even, if my memory serves correctly, like I showed up, like Matt and Will had already been working on it, um, like maybe for like, half a day before I showed up. I think I lived in Boston then. I think I lived in Amherst when Bucketful of Teeth started, and I think I lived in Boston when at that point. Um, so I maybe like they just got going the day beforehand and we were doing like a little weekend of it or whatever. I'm not sure. Um, and it was like, yeah, it was just already this insane thing that they had like recorded like some of um, as a reference for me. And then I started laying down bass parts, but I think they were already into like that song has like blast beat 
samples that were recorded at a separate time <laughs> than <laughs> the regu- the the live drum track, if you will, that were added over the you know the top of the song. Um, and yeah, a ton of stacked guitar tracks, and uh, just got into like weird weird noises and stuff like that. So. The power violence records and scene that we were into always had that element of like power electronics, harsh noise as well. So we were incorporating some of that and some ambient like stuff. Uh, ultimately, how did you hook up with iodine to uh, put out the discography? Um, well, Casey and I, when I moved to Boston, I, I actually um, I lived with a couple guys I just knew through other bands just for a while, but I had a really terrible room. It was like just a thing to do. Like after college, I wanted to live in a city. I think I had one plan go bust. And then uh, all of a sudden, three weeks later, like I'm just like, oh, there's a room in Boston with someone I kind of know. Okay, sure. Um, But it was like a room without heat. um, (laughs) You could barely get anything into. Um, And so as soon as I um, had an opportunity to get more of like my, it was also like one of those deals where it was like a railroad room. Like I had to walk through other people's rooms to get to my room. So Ugh. all those non-ideal things that happen in your like early twenties. Um, so I, uh, an opportunity came for me to get my, an actual normal room, uh, an apartment with, uh, people I knew, uh, my friend, Sarah and Sarah lived with Casey and that's how I met Casey. And I think the very first time I met him, he asked me, uh, he asked if he could sign wolves and I didn't know because no one really did that kind of thing at the time. I was, didn't know. I thought he was joking or that it was like some kind of like, I didn't take it seriously or <laughs> <laughs> whatever at the time. I just thought like maybe he was just like having a laugh about like the idea of like someone walking through the door and um, offering to sign their band. Later I realized that is something Casey probably would do and be serious about. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, when he wanted to partner for the podcast, uh-huh. I just I just brushed it off. Again, my my mind like my my for some reason my automatic reaction is to say no, or I was like no, I don't want to be controlled by somebody. But he was like, "What do you think of a partnership?" And I was like, "I don't even know what that means." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, also, at the time, like I was super like even super like dogmatic about certain things, um, and like signing to a label probably like formally wasn't like in my wheelhouse. Um, yeah. and I still never have not, I've still never signed anything with any label, I don't think. So, um, it's kind of funny like that. Um, it's not totally necessary if everyone's cool. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so bucket full of teeth has actually played shows, but only a handful, correct? Yeah. Um, so I guess we decided to, even though <laughs> we decided not to at some point. Um, I also don't remember why we made that decision. Um, and that was like a, a wild summer. If I, I've been trying, you know, uh, between, uh, Orchid saying we're going to play shows again and this bucket full of teeth thing coming out at the same time, it's like really like bringing back, like, you know, the dream of the nineties or early two thousands is alive for me, uh, every day now and trying to remember, um, like the timeline of things, but I'm pretty sure that, the year the summer i graduated from hampshire college wolves went on a month-long u.s tour immediately um and it was time to get back so we could see the last orchid shows which was really just going to the last one in boston like i didn't go to the ones in philly and uh, new york um 
and Wolves was playing the show too. We played the last Orchid show. Um, I don't remember who oh. else, else played. Maybe Sinaloa did. I don't know. Um, memory is tough these days. Um, but we played um, the show. So we wanted to be back for that. But Bucket Full of Teeth <laughs> went on our six-day tour later that summer. So, like, I mean, that might have been, like, that was kind of the pinnacle of, like, uh, being active. Um, and, like, that was the most prolific songwriting period I was involved in because, like, Wolves would write records and Bucket Full of Teeth would write records um, in the same time period. Um, and I was, and look, it comes back around to what we asked me my things. Like, I got to play emo guitar and I got to play power violence bass. So I was, you know, living the best dream. of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was the live configuration like for bucket full of teeth? How many people? Yeah, that was the key thing. Cause I said, we didn't really like, uh, have it in us to do the vocals live. Um, or either like able or not willing to, or whatever it was. Um, and also just needing to focus on playing. Um, our friend AJ from the band Anton Boardman was always telling us how much he was into Bucket Full of Teeth. And somewhere we got the idea, like, what if AJ was just like the standalone singer and he can just do the vocals um, and we'll just do it that way. And he was down for it. And someone else must have booked the shows. It must have been Will. And that got all planned. Um, and then we had to learn a set. And that was definitely, I'm sure there were certain songs that were off the table immediately because they just weren't possible, uh, <laughs> even with getting the standalone singer. Um, we also probably, if I had to guess, were playing 15 minutes, 20 minutes max. And um, we just, I don't remember anything extra that we brought other than a small keyboard for really to use on one song that I re remember. Um, but we brought our own PA. I think to run that keyboard with, and maybe we did the vocals too, or something, something of that nature. So, you know, we just did a, maybe like a stripped down version of it. Maybe it didn't have every single like sound in it, but uh, there's also a bunch of songs that are just grind parts and stoner rock parts and power rounds parts with nothing, you know, too, too crazy added. Have you thought about performing again now that we have the discography out there? <laughs> no, because as uh, as I just described, it barely happened in the first place. And, um, you know, when we had to learn, as we've been trying to relearn old Orchid songs, some of the Orchid songs have what you getting close to like a grind part. And it is hard to figure those things out later. Uh, bucket full of teeth would be way harder because there's even less muscle memory there. Uh, because we weren't a live band. Um, so you play the songs way less. Uh, Bucket Full of Teeth would, for the most part, write the songs and record them. And then that would be it. So I probably screwed around with the riffs I liked just, you know, when I was messing around on bass, like in that time period. But after that, like, yeah, n no, no. <laughs> well, think about it. You you could have a drummer. You could have a second guy with just a snare and a hi-hat. You could have like six guitar players on stage. It could be crazy. That would be the funnest way to do it. It would be to just have an absurd amount of uh, people involved. Um, and the, I think that like sampler technology and like maybe using a laptop, et cetera, to run certain tracks has improved to a point that we, we did not have that option at the time. Um, right. At all. Um, so, <laughs> so we'll think about it, but uh, don't bet on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody knows now Orchid, 
we'll be reuniting and that's very exciting and i you know what before i talk about how that happened how was it watching orchid go on and watching their rise and still going to the shows and apparently playing shows with them and your other band too like how was it to to watch all that continue while you were outside of the band um it was cool because i liked the music they kept making because i liked the what the direction we were going uh I remember uh, at some point, I think because they were on tour, maybe when I returned to college, they had recorded the um, Dance Tonight Revolution Tomorrow 10-inch. And I think Will left a tape in my mailbox and I popped it into my car uh, when I got back to college and I heard the first song of the 10-inch, Destination Blood, and I was just blown away. I thought it was awesome. That was totally, <laughs> totally sick. So uh, I guess I would say that um, I have the unique, uh, <laughs> the unique uh, situation of having been in the band, but also a fan. That's amazing. Yeah. And again, uh, I love the maturity, you know, no hard feelings. Everybody's friends. You go to the shows. Everything's good. Yeah, I mean, look, if you asked me at the time if I wished I was in the band still, like, probably. But, like, looking back on it, like, whatever. Like, you know, everything worked out. <laughs> right. When do discussions about the reunion start? How do you hear about this? How do you get involved? Oh, um, someone asked um, a, a blog, uh, I guess that's what I'll call it, a website, asked us to do an interview. They wanted to interview... Um, the four of us that played on chaos is me. Um, and, uh, Will and Jay and I did it. It was like over zoom and we had not like hung out or talked in a long time. Everyone's always been friends and like various people have hung out at different moments, probably depending on where they live and people played in other bands together. I mean, three of the, you know, final orchid member lineups, played in Panthers together. Um, you know, Will and I did bucket teeth together later, Jeff, um, Garlock, Will, and Jay did a band called Ritual Mess. And I think there's probably been like little, like tiny things here and there. Um, people have been always been in touch. Uh, once a year, we'd email with each other uh, and try and figure out how to maybe make a new t-shirt design um, and then not do it, um, <laughs> which is kind of an amazing that we've gotten to the point of actually uh, working on this reunion because yeah, that was the case in the past is that we couldn't even like figure out how to make another t-shirt design because people are busy doing other stuff and just, we would just be, you know, get stuck in the mud on like an opinion or, you know, whatever else. Um, I think I've gotten off track from your question. Oh, right. So we were on a zoom call together. Um, and we, but we also just jumped into it like an interview. It was like a print interview ultimately. Um, but, uh, Jay said afterwards, um, he said, Hey, it was really fun to see you guys. Like, what if we all jumped on a zoom just to hang out? Um, because like that hasn't happened forever. And a bunch of us don't like live close by. So that honestly just happened on some like weekday night, I think, you know, uh, a year ago, I actually don't really know now. Um, and then he broached the subject, um, and just, to gauge what people were thinking. Um, and it wasn't like everyone was like a yes immediately. Um, but we kept talking about it. And eventually like we decided like some parameters that we would be willing to do it under. And it's just been a process of like working that out. And I think those parameters have changed along the way. Um, what was some trepidation during the initial discussions? Um, I would say that like certain, like, 
I think I don't think anyone had like this definitive like I definitely want to do it. And like I do not want to do it under any circumstances, but maybe it was like a spectrum for each individual and then amongst each other as well. But I mean, some people I think just maybe like I'm I'm busy doing other stuff. Um, and you know, maybe I I can't really speak for everyone else because I don't have their exact opinion memorized. But uh, I think that a lot one of the reasons like nothing like this ever happened in the past too is like we've always like I was mentioning everyone kept doing other bands and stuff. Like we're always moving forward, not looking backwards. Not that this means we're just you know, ready to look backwards, but, um, uh, we just talked about it and eventually everyone kind of came to a place where they thought it was a good idea, but yeah, the initial trepidation was like, ah, eh, maybe, you know, maybe I just don't feel like I need to do that. Um, yeah. And there were like, you know, a person like me was pushing a little bit more like, a. I was like, I've gotten to the, like more of like a, the why not portion, you know, kind of. Did you guys ever talk about entertaining any other, uh, reunion offers over the years? I would say not seriously, but every, like, you know, there would be good communication, like, um, you know, because like the band still has records in print and stuff like, yeah, we always have like band communication because like little decisions still have to be made every once in a while, um, et cetera. And so people pass on information, like maybe an interview request or whatever, but occasionally there'd be like, Oh, some person like says like, you know, like they they'll do this and this and this if we play some festival or whatever, you know, or just a show or whatever. Then we'd be like, okay, and then just not be that interested. Either it didn't like, you know, add up for various reasons. So, um, yeah, we didn't do it this time because someone asked us. uh, We decided on our own terms. So I guess it was maybe never going to happen because someone was like, you know, presenting something. which kind of adds up to the way we always did things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you ever get a really big offer and think, man, I kind of want to do this? Uh, n- I don't think in the past it ever was anything like that because you like you quickly you might hear like a number and be like, oh wow, and then but you then you remember that people don't live in the same place and there's plane tickets and all kinds of things involved, and you're like, that number is not going to be. <laughs> like you know i cannot quit my day job uh over that um etc so um it's all very, it's all very nice though it's like obviously you know we used to get 20 bucks to play a show so um you know that it's uh it's pretty different now have you guys gotten together and played again yeah um that was i think uh you know what i don't really remember even this, this was this is like a near-term memory problem but um we definitely were trying to get in the same room together to play, to just shake off the rust and see how that would go um, before we fully committed to it. But I think that we, you know what? I guess we hadn't really fully committed to it. Um, I think there was an idea laid out and we were talking to people that could help us with that idea. And I think we had played together, but yeah, Jeff, uh, Jeff Slaney, the drummer and Will and I got together one weekend uh, and played for like a day and a half. And then, uh, Next time we did that, Jay came and uh, gave uh, Screaming, you know, a shot again. And he sounded great. And uh, it's been pretty cool. But it's also like real work to learn the songs. Um, another aspect is we're doing a new version of Orchid in a way because we're doing all five people. Um, I'm playing second guitar. So I've got to learn the songs on guitar now. Ah, see, I was going to ask how it's going to work with Jeff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a thing to figure out as well. Um, and there was no real obvious answer. Uh, 
in the beginning, and then we pretty easily settled on uh, this aspect and is challenging new thing for me, um, but also fun um, to play these songs on guitar and play songs I never played or didn't know how to play. How do you figure out the songs on guitar? Do you work with Will? Do you just listen to it? What do yeah. you do? Will, Will uh, well, not just, he doesn't just show me. He did show me. He has to show me some stuff because it's just a little like, I don't even know how you would write it down. Um, but yeah, there's, um, <laughs> I have a, uh, you know, we have a shared folder uh, in the cloud there that is just handwritten um, notation from Will about the guitar parts and uh i think very little of it would make sense to anyone else um because you have to have a you have to have like at least i had my foot in the door on like how guitar should be played in this band but it's it's pretty unique and there's parts that are just kind of like so fast that it's like really hard to like you know pin down (laughs) their exactness i've done this multiple times where I join a band and I have to learn a set of songs. And it's for for me, it's one of the most stressful things in the world. Yeah, I mean, there's a stressful part of it. But this is the case. I think I've been in all kinds of bands um, where I had to learn like I had to I joined Transistor Transistor and it was, you know, halfway through the existence of the band and they had a bunch of records out. Um, and it was in drop D and I'd never played in drop D, which didn't make it necessarily harder, but it was new and different. So I guess I've been down this road before, but like, yeah, but you also get better at playing your instrument when you join a new band or play with new people because you learn their like tricks and like things that you've never done before. So until Transistor, Transistor, what were you playing in standard? Yeah, I just played in standard. And the funny thing about that, too, is um, with learning the Orchid songs, I then just stayed with Drop D for the next 20 years or whatever it was, et cetera. So now I have to play guitar in standard again, which at first was like throwing me a tiny bit, but um, it, it all comes back, you know? It's like, it's totally fine. <laughs> See, again, so many similarities. I played in standard, then I learned Drop D. I stuck with that for like 20 years, and now I'm down to Drop C. Yeah. Oh, and like a uh, secret for all the Orchid people, uh, anyone trying to play an Orchid song, it's not standard really because it's, uh, it's like a half step down, um, but still like a standard tuning, but a half step down from E. Um, so some reason we did that. <laughs> <laughs> Early on. Uh, since, since there's a second guitar now in Orchid, are you adding things? No, not really. Uh, it's mostly pretty... Uh, much matching and then there's like dynamic parts because of but you know most of it was recorded with at least two guitar tracks um i don't know the later records exactly what happened i could probably pick certain things out like just listening but chaos as me has three guitar tracks i'm pretty positive um notably uh one of the songs there's a big pick slide intro in the like early on and there's three different they start at different times um which was intentional. It's like the one studio move for a record that was recorded quickly and mostly live. But, you know, there were the guitar overdubs that gave an opportunity to do a fun pick slide thing. Um, So, uh, yeah, I really haven't tried to add anything because one, I would say the earlier songs have less room for that period. And then two, like, you know, that's, I don't think that's really like a smart, well, how do I put this? It's n- neither necessary nor does anyone want there to be like new parts. 
<laughs> on the <laughs> things. But there are decisions when we're working that out. There are decisions that have to be made, like that are just a li- that are a little bit interesting. Like maybe like, well, where am I going to come in? You know, or something like that. Or, you know, so like it's a little bit different. But like you know, we had that conversation from the get go. Like it's going to be different. Period. Um, we're all in our mid forties. We're not in our early twenties. So it's going to be different, and it's going to be different because we've got second guitar. But um. I'm biased, but I think everyone thinks the second guitar is a cool thing that sounds good. Have we talked about what we're going to wear? Are we going to bring back any of the fashion? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I uh, don't have access to any of those clothes anymore, nor would I fit in them. So I think I'll probably just wear what I'd wear. <laughs> I, think you, I think you'll see me on stage on whatever I would wear if I were to go to a show. So Yeah, I figured that was the case, but I had to check. Yeah, no, uh, it's funny looking back uh, old pictures. I went really nuts and like tried to like scan and like archive everything like um, leading up to this. And yeah, like there's a bunch of times where I'm just like, what was going on with my pants? You know, like why, (laughs) why was that the choice or whatever? But you know, uh, yeah, remember boot cut jeans? That was a stupid phase. Yeah. I found a picture of me in transistor where my jeans looked a little, like a little too uh, wide at the bottom. Um, which I don't know why I had those, but I also probably just like needed a pair of jeans, went into a thrift store and walked out with some and didn't put like a ton of thought into it. Um, I didn't have great fashion sense. Maybe I still don't, but you know, (laughs) Um, see around, around 2012, I switched to wearing mostly all black back, uh, back in the scene days, I was still wearing blue jeans and gray t-shirts and all that stuff. But I'm, I'm happy to be settled on all black now. Yeah, I'm probably lean mostly that way too. Um, I think that I actually would go a little bit against the grain back in the day. Um, and, uh, you know, try not to wear all black or something of that nature. I couldn't possibly tell you why, but even like, uh, going, I, I, I kept a ton of stuff and I, opened up this bin of old t-shirts so I could like take pictures of them. And like the first orchid tour that we did was like 19 days. And we just kind of had like the seven inches out the early stuff a little bit, like probably doing, we had like tour covers and stuff, but like none of the shirts were black. Like they were like weird colors, you know, they were like gray and like olive green and blue and like, just, you know, so like none of nothing, you know, anyone really wanted to wear probably. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, it must've been trippy to be together again, playing after all that time, especially now that you're on guitar. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, I would say though, that I was so focused on just trying to like figure the songs out and play them well, that I, I wasn't like living in the moment during those like first couple of practices we have, but it's been awesome to spend so much time interacting, uh, with the other guys. Um, and I hadn't seen Jeff Selaney, um, like I, I don't actually totally know, but like since the mid two thousands, I my best guess is that I went to a Panthers show, and I saw him there, and then I just didn't see him for whatever reason, in all this time or whatever. And I hadn't seen the other people like a ton. I saw Will maybe a little more often for various reasons. He was in Philly a couple times, stayed with me, etc. Uh, he came down and used my studio um, to record something once and was around for a few days. But yeah, it hasn't been a ton. Um, but like I said, we would email occasionally. Maybe something particularly comes up with one member and you, you know, send them a text or whatever here and there. Um, but, but now we're talking every day, you know, for months. So that's been really awesome. And it was really awesome to see people in person. And it's super fun to hang out. And it was like nothing ever like stopped. Didn't see Jeff for 15 years. And like, I just hung out with him. Like we never, you know, had not hung out 
I imagine a lot of good memories and good times come back from the old days when now that you guys are back together again. Yeah, there's, you know, uh, we're always into making lots of stupid jokes, especially like in the van when it's just us, etc. So that happens on the group chat. And uh, yeah, it's a ton of fun. And also like, yeah, people come up with memories that you don't you didn't think about or you didn't remember in a super long time. And then also we argue about memories and people think that something happened and something didn't or when it happened. And all kinds of stuff. And then other people are bringing other people are bringing stuff up to us. And we're just like, that didn't happen. You know, <laughs> like people, you know, that now that like we announced this thing on Instagram, you know, everyone's coming out of the woodwork. Um, and yeah, some of that stuff's pretty funny. Pretty huge response to the announcement, huh? That, that must feel good. Yeah, that was that that was super overwhelming. Um, I knew certain people, some people would be excited. But like, uh, that was like, a you know, a wild week, if you will, um, of just seeing, seeing the response with all that. Um, it's super awesome. Um, it can't say enough about, uh, feeling good about like doing something when you're 19 and then people still caring about it when you're 45. Yeah. I mean, that that's the best. That's the best. It's like in this time capsule fermenting people love it. I'm sure over the years you heard about how influential it was and how much people love it and new people discovering it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that stuff's awesome. I love hearing that. Um, just because like, it sounds like it's been positive for other people, um, makes them want to start a band. Like I started a band because I, you know, liked born against and, um, you know, Antioch arrow, like, so if someone is excited about orchid and makes them want to, you know, be part of that legacy, then that's awesome. So we have some gigs coming up, right? Yeah. Um, early May, um, Boston, Philly, and then New York. Is there any more plans for anything else after that? No. Uh, well, we are playing this festival in Toronto. It's called, um, oh man, I don't remember the name of it right now. Is um, it New Friends Fest? No, it's called, it's, it's, a, it's a new festival. Um, and... Uh, prepare the ground. Sorry. There's a pod. There's another podcast with a similar name. And I was almost said that that would have been a mess up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's called prepare the ground. Um, and we are playing that a few weeks later. Um, so we're able to, uh, play in Toronto as well. Um, but truly, truly, uh, we do not have plans beyond that. It doesn't mean there won't be. Um, but I truly couldn't say like one way or the other. I think the easiest thing to say is we're going to see how this goes and we'll go from there. Did we settle on any new t-shirt designs? <laughs> yes, yes, we actually did. That's an amazing thing uh, that's happened too, is when you make a choice to do something, you have to actually do it. And uh, yeah, there'll be some new t-shirt designs. So I'm sure that's no surprise. But yeah, three of them are already done. Whereas like for 15 years, like we couldn't, you know, come up with one. Um, so yeah, we've gotten more done in the last like three months than we got done in 15 years. <laughs> well, it's not time until it's time, right? Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it is, it is just the right time. It definitely feels good. All right. Uh, so here's what we want to do, everybody. We've got the bucket full of teeth discography. You can hear it streaming right now. I recommend you do that. When's the vinyl come out? Um, I'm pretty sure it's coming out in February. They just did the pre-order and that like, uh, people really like respond to that well too. Uh, really, you know, sold well. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll just take a minute to thank Casey um, and everyone that works uh, at or with iodine for working on that project. 
funnily enough, like that kind of um, <laughs> ended up being announced like, you know, a week or two after the Orchid stuff, but they were on completely different timelines. Casey talked to me about doing the Bucket Philatis discography, I think three or more years ago. Oh, wow. So it's been like, uh, it's been in the pipeline for a long time. Uh, took us a while to get the artwork done, find um, someone to do the artwork and just work through that process. Then we decided we wanted to remaster it to just have it sound a little sweeter um, for the new press and on streaming because it was really only on Bandcamp beforehand. Um, so yeah, it's been like a longer process, but also like totally, totally stoked on the response for that. Um, and yeah, uh, really appreciative that it's being put back out in the world for people to hear again and hopefully that some new people will find it. We've got the Orchid gigs coming up. I don't know which ones are sold out and which ones aren't, but if uh, if you can get in, you have to go. I mean, we want people to go, right, Brad? Yeah, we tried to set it up so people could go. We didn't want it to be a situation where it just was like sells out in one second and no one and like a bunch of people can't go. So we've tried to make it, you know, a bunch of decisions have to be made to figure all this stuff out and they're not they involve compromises sometimes, but one thing we wanted to do is not have it that, you know, we want as many people to go as could go as can go, want to go. And uh I do think there's still tickets available at Warsaw in Brooklyn for the Thursday night. And I wanna say the church in Philly. Um but I also know that I haven't been updated on any of that stuff over the holidays here. So um, maybe, but yeah, go look, get the tickets. Cause like I said, um, no plans after this. We'll see how it goes. Amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to Orchid being back. I'm looking forward to more. And uh, Brad, I just want to say, I appreciate everything you do. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Keith. I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's been great to talk to you. And there you have it, Brad Wallace. Excellent, excellent conversation. Really excited that Orchid are back. Really excited that they're going to be playing shows again. And really excited to learn all about Brad's rich history in music. Bucketful of Teeth, great band. Wolves, great band. Transistor, Transistor, great band. The guy can't miss. Look, we can't forget about Hells either. Shout out to you, Larry. But it was great to connect with Brad, and I'm excited that Orchid are playing shows again, and I wish him all the best. So thank you so much, Brad, for coming on the show. So let's check in, huh? How are we doing? I'm not doing well, so I'm going to keep it really short this week. I have COVID again. I got it Halloween of 2022, and I have it again now. I came down hard this past Thursday. I knew I was going to get it because everybody here is getting it again. A lot of people that I know, and I was at two indoor functions on New Year's Day around a lot of different people, so I knew I was going to get it, but I'm glad I got it this week because any other week would be very, very inconvenient for me. This is the one week that I have to sit around inside and be home. So I'm sick. I'm not feeling good. I barely got up and had enough energy to finish the show, but I'm glad that I did 
because I would hate to miss a week. Let me tell you, I haven't done it yet and I don't want to do it anytime soon. So here's my one update for this week. Next weekend, the legendary All Else Failed will be playing St. Vitus. That show is on January 13th and I will be there because my quarantine period ends the day before. So if you're in the Northeast, if you're in New York City, go to the show. Let's have some fun. On that note, I am going to end the show with To Whom It May Concern from All Else Failed. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening, and until next time. I apologize! I think I am.